Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 17, Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Romans! Countrymen! Be patient till the last! Hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear! Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe! Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge! Caesar! assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's. To him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves, than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? No! No! I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. As tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that will be a bondsman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any speak, for him have I offended. I pause for a reply. None, Brutus, none! I have done no more to Caesar than you shall do to Brutus. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. So this podcast is all about books and literature and this time in particular about plays. And each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we both have read in time for the recording. And we determine whether it's worthy of its reputation and we just really enjoy discussing and asking different questions about it. Maybe questions that people have thought of already and they're all academic or maybe just questions that have been on our mind 
Uh, so it's been a lot of fun as we make it to episode 17. So here I am. I'm the one who chose this because my poor beloved gets stabbed in this play. And I thought, what a perfect time because this is coming out on the Ides of March. And, of course, with me is my Brutus, I suppose, to my Julius Caesar. I hope he wouldn't betray me, but who knows? It's Tom Panneries. Everybody's always betraying you. <laughs> oh so. my gosh, you have no idea how hard I have it. Like you've got enough, you've got enough people you've called traitor, traitors to have the conspiracy people from Julius Caesar, right? That's true. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you recognize it. So, <laughs> would you be? Would you help me out? Would you be my Antony or would you be my Brutus? Some days I would be your Antony, and some days I would oh be your Brutus. My. It depends. It depends on how I'm feeling at the moment. <laughs> okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Oh my goodness. Well, this uh. is lovely. I'm very excited to get to do this. And I've not read all of Shakespeare. I'm sure there are those people out there, but I've dabbled in him, both for academic purposes and for fun as well. And while I will say that maybe Julius Caesar is not like the greatest art that Shakespeare has produced. I really love it, and I think there are some amazing moments, amazing monologues and soliloquies that come out of this play, and so that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to revisit it. So, Tom, before I talk about my history, what is your history with this particular play? Yeah, yeah. Actually, before I get into that, I did I, when you were t saying that it did make me think of like how many times I was looking through this. this is something we'll talk about later. Is how quote how Absolutely. quoted this play is. My history of this book goes back to my sophomore year of high school. Um, for the first three years of high school in English class, we were assigned a play by William Shakespeare, and um, in ninth grade it was Romeo and Juliet, which is like a ninth grade standard across the American public education system. And in 11th grade, it was Macbeth, uh, which I actually teach to seniors. And uh, in 10th grade, it was Julius Caesar. Um, 12th grade, we did not read any Shakespeare. We went back to the Greeks and we read mm. some Sophocles. But yeah, so we read this. This was the first quarter of the year. And um, shout out to Mrs. <laughs> Tabor for making this uh, something that was like, I was really intrigued by. A number of people really didn't like it. We did that really tedious thing of slowly going through it where it seemed like it took forever to read it. Um, and there were days where it was really fascinating and days where it wasn't. And she played like a tape version and sometimes we read the parts. But I remember liking it. I remember liking the action, the political mm -hmm. intrigue of it. Uh, years later, I would see it performed uh, when a company called the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express came to my college during my sophomore year. And that college was a Loyola College, now Loyola University in Maryland, in Baltimore. And they performed it. They did a very minimalist production. Um, it was like, you know, black turtlenecks and jeans, theater boxes. So, And they did it in this sort of very sped up Shakespeare type of way. Um, it was pretty well done. That method didn't lend itself as well to their tragedies that it did to their comedies. Because I had seen them do Twelfth Night like the year before and was like rolling over laughing from it. Incidentally, the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express was the original version of what is now the American Shakespeare Center, the Blackfriars Theater out in Stanton, Virginia, which is about an hour away from me and you. And I've seen – never seen them do Caesar, but I've seen them do um, The Two Gentlemen of Verona and Twelfth Night and A Midsummer Night's Dream and um, – there might have been another play in there somewhere, but uh, I always love uh, love going to see them when I get the chance. And uh, I would highly recommend anybody 
local to Virginia or not too far away from Virginia to go there and or see a live performance anyway. So, but yeah, that's my history with the book. I read it in high school. It's been on my list. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, I've been to Blackfriars as well. I think three different occasions maybe, three or four. And I, I second that. It's uh, wonderful. I, I haven't seen Julius Caesar perform, but I did see Mark Antony. Well, Antony and Cleopatra performed. I saw that at the oh, Folger okay. in D.C. It was interesting, I should say. It's it's a the Antony and Cleopatra is yeah. not a right play. It's it's not it, it's not no. Caesar. It's not the most um, exciting. But it is. No, no, and and it and and it. I will say it does drag. Yeah. After Antony's death, like Cleopatra's part drags a little bit but i i remember enjoying that too because i read that in college yeah so my history is 10th grade english this is my advanced english (laughs) my advanced english on the curriculum mr mustard shout out to him and it's really funny because his classroom abutted my latin teacher's classroom so it worked really well and i think i really very much enjoyed this play while i was reading it because i was also in latin at the time and and just really enjoyed the the culture and the history so having it you know almost cross curriculum uh, i think Mm -hmm. uh, was just it was great at that time so that's my my history there i've seen some adaptations i watched one on monday and i wondered if it was the one that i had seen before it was a 53 version with marlon brando as antony but it was in black and white Mm -hmm. and i feel like the one i saw was in color so i think it might have been the charleston heston one which was in the 70s where he was antony but I just wanted to to watch one before we recorded. But yeah, no, it's like I said, it's one of my favorites because I think just the subject matter. I think, like I said, there are just some amazing speeches there. And you're right about how quotable it is. And even now, I think when I was reading through it, the what's his name? Something Green, who wrote the Fault in Our Stars. John. Yes. So clearly that had to have come from here, right? Yeah. Because Cassius yeah, is saying, you know, the fault, dear Brutus. The fault, dear Brutus, lies on yes. our stars or whatever the line is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's great. Uh, and, you know, Antony's speech, obviously, both when he's with the body of Caesar inside mm-hmm. the Senate House and then when he's outside, those things are oft repeated, which we'll get into that because I feel like they're more repeated potentially than, than Brutus's. But I, I just think it's uh, it's great and uh, it certainly deserves its place amongst Shakespeare's plays as being lauded. So there you mm-hmm. go. I had kind of, I, I forgot to mention this, I had kind of an interesting way of reading it this time around. I downloaded the Folger Shakespeare Library audiobook performance, which is a dramatization. So it's, you know, it's act, it's a troop of actors. I think most of them are American putting on the play for, for an audio purpose. And I read along with it. Mm. And I've done that with Shakespeare a number of times over the last few years, especially when I have to teach a Shakespeare mm. play, because I'm very much from the school that like drama really helps. Like if you've seen it as opposed to um, like read it on the page and this, it's a way for me to absorb it and follow it well as opposed to just kind of reading it in the abstract or listening to the abstract and i just to just to nerd brag here i have well it's my wife's but <laughs> i have my wife's copy i have my wife my wife the english major's copy of the norton anthology of shakespeare so wow. it's that huge yes. book that like yep. you can hurt somebody with and the pages are like those bible onion skin like paper like really really thin pages that like that's me flipping the page so wow. so i had this like huge 
huge Shakespeare book as opposed to like one little edition of Caesar. Do you feel like it helps you in listening, Henry, at the same time with obviously inflections from the actor, but also better understanding feelings maybe? And, um, you know, if there's a line that could be ambiguously read that maybe listening to it helps you come to a decision about the true meaning of yeah. that? I think it does. And I, and I, like I said, I, I started doing that a few years ago when I had to teach one of his comedies. I think it was Twelfth Night. The comedies are harder to read, in my opinion, than the tragedies. Because the tragedies all have the plot where, like, somebody's going to die, you know, sure. and there's action. So the comedy is so, so dependent on, like, wit. And um, and so I started listening to the comedy and I would read along with it where I had to. And I was taking notes in, in order to plan it. So I thought I'd do it with this. And it, it really worked out well. It It put it in my head a lot better than had I um, sat there and tried to read it. That's interesting, though, that you read along with it, because as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, because knowing that you had been listening to it, and I thought to myself, I wonder how much like retention there is in just listening to a play, because I think Sherlock Holmes is one thing. I may have met, missed some details, but overall I was able to get it. But the, Shakespeare is pretty intense, and so I feel like I would have missed it, but... You, I think you do a smart thing by reading as well as listening, so you're not missing those details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I don't want to. The, the, the hole or the trap with Shakespeare is that you could go on and on about the history and this guy. And of course, there's controversy, and you know, everyone's got their own idea about who Shakespeare is. So I just wanted to hit the highlights about who this person is. Do you think that's acceptable? That makes total sense. Oh, okay. Which will be interesting because if you do a Shakespeare, I guess you'll have to do other highlights of his life. Yeah, like around the time he was writing the play, yes, for instance. Yeah, there you go. So Shakespeare was, of course, an English poet, playwright, and actor, and he is widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's preeminent dramatist. Uh, He's often called the Bard of Avon, and his works include approximately 39 plays, 154 sonnets, two long narrative poems, and a few other verses. His plays have been translated into nearly every major living language and are performed, that's interesting I said living, and are performed more often than those of any other playwright. So getting to Caesar here, it was originally published in the first folio of 1623, but a performance was actually mentioned by Thomas Platter the Younger in his diary in September 1599. It's not mentioned in the list of Shakespeare's plays published by Francis Marys in 1598, so based on these two thoughts, the belief is that it is uh, probably 1599 makes sense, uh, they take into consideration Hamlet's vocabulary as well as Henry V and As You Like It uh, with its meter. So it's one of several plays written by Shakespeare based on true events from Roman history, which also includes Coriolanus, which I'm actually considering how to bring that into my Latin curriculum this year for the final exam. I'll, hmm. I'll get back to you to see if that actually works. And I've never Ant- read that. <laughs> uh, I only know the story, of course, but yeah, I okay. haven't either. And Antony and Cleopatra, which Tom and I have both seen, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. Although the play is named Julius Caesar, this is the irony. Well, maybe maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't talk about that because this is actually no, a question. Okay. Well, Brutus actually speaks more than four times as many lines as Julius Caesar. And really, the main drama of the play focuses on Brutus' struggle uh, because, of course, 
pietas, um, which is one of those preeminent Roman virtues, which is devotion or duty to God, state, and family above self. That's He's conflicted between that honor and, of course, friendship, because he is a close friend with Caesar. Now, the main source of this play was, in fact, Thomas North's translation of Plutarch's Lives. But I do want to go through and talk about some of the deviations from Plutarch. And I know that some people have, they're well-versed in Roman history, so they know a lot about Shakespeare. And so I think they could probably tell as they read that there are some deviations from history. And, of course, he had to constrict the time frame because it couldn't go on for days. Yeah. So which we see in the end with the, the Battle of Philippi. So, Shakespeare makes Caesar's triumph take place on the day of the Lupercalia, which is the uh, 15th of February instead of six months earlier. And I just want to say something about the Lupercalia. It is a super weird festival. Men would run around naked. Usually I think they would have like a wolf mask on them uh, because lupus is wolf. And they would hit women with like goat skins. And so when Caesar at the beginning calls Antony over and says, in your run, could you touch my wife because she's infertile or whatever or sterile, that's what he's basically asking her to do because the thought is that if you are hit by one of these goatskins when they run by, that, in fact, you would become fertile and have you know a child later on. It is a super huh. weird festival. <laughs> so just to bring that into, uh, into consideration. For dramatic effect, he makes the capital the venue of Caesar's death rather than the Curia Pompeia, which at least there is the statue of Pompey there, which that was sort of the key there. Caesar's murder, the funeral, and Antony's oration, the reading of the will, and the arrival of Octavius all take place on the same day in the play. However, historically, the assassination took place, of course, on the Ides of March, which was the 15th of March, and the will was published on the 18th of March, and the funeral was on the 20th, and Octavius arrived only in May, so a little bit later. He couldn't just dash over. Shakespeare makes the triumvirs meet in Rome instead of near Bononia to avoid an additional locale, and he combines the two battles of Philippi, although there was a 20-day interval between them. And then finally, which is sort of the big one and, and lasting, lasting memory, and I think that's, everyone thinks that he says this, right? Uh, Shakespeare gives Caesar's last words at to Brute and you, Brutus, and Plutarch and Suetonius each report that he said nothing, with Plutarch adding that he pulled his toga over his head when he saw Brutus among the conspirators. Though Suetonius does record all the reports that Caesar said in Greek, Kaisu technon, and you child, which my Greek professor also said that that um, may have been what he said. So the Latin words et tu brute, however, were not devised by Shakespeare for this play since they are attributed to Caesar in early Elizabethan works and had become conventional by 1599. So potentially, mm. but that's, I think a lot of people think that Caesar did say that, but who knows what the chances are. So as Shakespeare is deviating from some of these historical facts to, of course, like I said, compress time and facts so that the play could be staged more easily and the tragic force is condensed into a few scenes for some heightened effect, which I think you, you need to do. And, and I think yeah. probably people at the time would be really well-versed in that history anyways with Julius Caesar. I was reading, uh, I was reading The Odyssey today and uh, in, with my freshman and uh, – <gasps> We were talking about something, and like the textbook we're reading out of has made notes that some of the stories of Odysseus were well known prior to them being told by Homer, or some of the stories of like the Trojan War and things like that. So, when 
say Menelaus and Helen make an appearance, like audiences would have known who they were and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the audience probably it, it makes total sense that the audience might have come in with like a certain amount of knowledge. Right. Of, of Caesar as a historical figure. I wasn't, I can't recall where it was that I saw this, but it was talking about other times that Shakespeare and his other plays have mentioned Julius Caesar before he had mm. written this. So it seems like he continues to be this big figure, I think, yeah. that, that people know of, and he has popped up and well, everything. And I know that, I want to say Dante's Divine Comedy predates Shakespeare, and in The Inferno, in the very center of hell are traitors mm. and among like kind of in, in the thrall or in the captivity of Lucifer, who's kind of the big thing in the middle of hell, obviously. And you have Judas is obviously mentioned, but Brutus is another one mentioned, at least from what I can remember. It's been a good 20 years mm. since I've read the, uh, the Inferno. So, so I might, I might be misremembering that, but I do know that Brutus is somewhere. Marcus Brutus, as he refers to them is somewhere in Dante's um, Inferno. And I believe he's in one of the inner circles of hell. Okay. Oh man. Poor guy. So <laughs> it was a well-known story. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Well, anything else that you feel like people need to know before we give our or uh, before I give the synopsis and we talk no, about No, just it? the plot, man. Okay. <laughs> just the, that that sounds like that guy who says just the just the facts, man. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're trying to do? That's what I was trying oh, to do. Oh, okay. What's I'm that? Say dragnet? Okay. Just just the facts, man. Okay. So here we go. Two tribunes Flavius and Morellus find scores of Roman citizens wandering the streets, neglecting their work in order to watch Julius Caesar's triumphal parade. Caesar has defeated the sons of the deceased Roman general Pompey, his arch-rival, in battle. The tribunes scold the citizens for abandoning their duties and remove decorations from Caesar's statues. Caesar enters with his entourage, including the military and political figures Brutus, Cassius, and Antony. At this time, a soothsayer <laughs> calls out to Caesar to beware the Ides of March, but Caesar ignores him and proceeds with his victory celebration. Just a note that tribunes would be, they had to be plebeian class, so these aren't like upper class or rich citizens, Flavius and Morales. Cassius and Brutus, both longtime intimates of Caesar and each other, converse. Cassius tells Brutus that he has seemed distant lately. Brutus replies that he has been at war with himself. Cassius states that he wishes Brutus could see himself as others see him, for then Brutus would realize how honored and respected he is. Brutus says that he fears that the people want Caesar to become king, which would overturn the Republic. Cassius concurs that Caesar is treated like a god, though he is merely a man no better than Brutus or Cassius. Cassius recalls the incidents oh man, of Caesar's physical weakness and marvels that this fallible man has become so powerful. I actually thought that um, monologue was pretty funny because he mentions Aeneas. He said, I was like Aeneas carrying aged Anchises across the river <laughs> when they were swimming. He blames his and Brutus's lack of will for allowing Caesar's rise to power. Surely the rise of such a man cannot be the work of fate. Brutus considers Cassius' words as Caesar returns. Upon seeing Cassius, Caesar tells Antony that he deeply distrusts Cassius. Caesar departs, and another politician, Casca, tells Brutus and Cassius that, during the celebration, Antony offered the crown to Caesar three times, and the people cheered, but Caesar refused it each time. He reports that Caesar then fell to the ground and had some kind of seizure before the crowd. His demonstration of weakness, however, did not alter the plebeians' devotion to him. Just a historical note that Caesar, it's believed that he had epilepsy. 
I know that mm, they call okay. it the falling down sickness or something. Or the falling yeah. sickness is how they phrase it in there. But just, just so as you know. Brutus goes home to consider Cassius's words regarding Caesar's poor qualifications to rule. While Cassius hatches a plot to draw Brutus into a conspiracy <gasps> against Caesar. That night, Rome is plagued with violent weather and a variety of bad omens and portents. Brutus finds letters in his house, oh my goodness, apparently written by Roman citizens worried that Caesar has become too powerful. The letters have in fact been forged and planted by Cassius, who knows that if Brutus believes it is the people's will, he will support a plot to remove Caesar from power. A committed supporter of the Republic, Brutus fears the possibility of a dictator-led empire, worrying that the populace would lose its voice. Cassius arrives at Brutus's home with his conspirators, and Brutus, who has already been won over by the letters, takes control of the meeting. The men agree to lure Caesar from his house and kill him. Cassius wants to kill Antony too, for Antony will surely try to hinder their plans, but Brutus disagrees, believing that too many deaths will render their plot too bloody and dishonor them. Having agreed to spare Antony, the conspirators depart. Portia, the, uh, Brutus's wife, observes that Brutus appears preoccupied. She pleads with him to confide in her, but he rebuffs her. Caesar prepares to go to the Senate. His wife, this is the next day. His wife Calpurnia begs him not to go, describing recent nightmares she has had in which a statue of Caesar streamed with blood and smiling men bathed their hands in the blood. Caesar refuses to yield to fear and insists on going about his daily business. Finally, Calpurnia convinces him to stay home, if not out of caution, then as a favor to her. But Decius, one of the conspirators, then arrives and convinces Caesar that Calpurnia has misinterpreted her dreams and the recent omens. Caesar departs for the Senate in the company of the conspirators. As Caesar proceeds through the streets toward the Senate, the soothsayer again tries but fails to get his attention. Citizen Artemidorus hands him a letter warning him about the conspirators, but Caesar refuses to read it, saying that his closest personal concerns are his last priority. At the Senate, the conspirators speak to Caesar, bowing at his feet and encircling him. One by one, they stab him to death. When Caesar sees his dear friend Brutus among his murderers, he gives up his struggle and dies. The murderers bathe their hands in swords and Caesar's blood, thus bringing Calpurnia's premonition to fruition. Antony, having been led away on a false pretext, returns and pledges allegiance to Brutus, but weeps over Caesar's body. He shakes hands with the conspirators, thus making them all as guilty, while appearing to make a gesture of conciliation. When Antony asks why they killed Caesar, Brutus replies that he will explain their purpose in a funeral oration. Antony asks to be allowed to speak over the body as well. Brutus grants his permission, though Cassius remains suspicious of Antony. The conspirators depart, and Antony, alone now, swears that Caesar's death shall be avenged. Brutus and Cassius go to the forum to speak to the public. Cassius exits to address another part of the crowd. Brutus declares to the masses that though he loves Caesar, he loves Rome more, and Caesar's ambition poses a danger to Roman liberty. The speech placates the crowd. Antony appears with Caesar's body, and Brutus departs after turning the pulpit over to Antony. Repeatedly referring to Brutus as, quote, an honorable man, end quote, Antony's speech becomes increasingly sarcastic questioning the claims that Brutus made in his speech that Caesar acted out of only ambition. Antony points out that Caesar brought much wealth and glory to Rome and three times turned down offers of the crown. Antony then produces Caesar's will but announces that he will not read it for it would upset the people inordinately. The crowd nevertheless begs him to read the will, so he descends from the pulpit to stand next to Caesar's body. He describes Caesar's horrible death and shows Caesar's wounded body to the crowd. He then reads Caesar's will, which bequeaths a sum of money to every citizen and orders that his private gardens be made public. 
The crowd becomes enraged that this generous man lies dead, calling Brutus and Cassius traitors. The masses set off to drive them from the city. Meanwhile, Caesar's adopted son and appointed successor Octavius arrives in Rome and forms a three-person coalition with Antony and Lepidus. They prepare to fight Cassius and Brutus, who have been driven into exile and are raising armies outside the city. At the conspirators' camp, Brutus and Cassius have a heated argument regarding matters of money and honor, but they ultimately reconcile. Brutus reveals that he is sick with grief, for in his absence Portia has killed herself. The two continue to prepare for battle with Antony and Octavius. That night, the ghost of Caesar. Great Caesar's ghost! This all <laughs> co- it all comes back to Superman! The Superman! Oh, man. That night, the ghost of Caesar appears to Brutus, announcing that Brutus will meet him again on the battlefield. Octavius and Antony march their army toward Brutus and Cassius. Antony tells Octavius where to attack, but Octavius says that he will make his own orders. He is already asserting his authority as the heir of Caesar and the next ruler of Rome. Foreshadowing. The opposing generals meet on the battlefield and exchange insults before beginning combat. Cassius witnesses his own men fleeing and hears that Brutus's men are not performing effectively. Cassius sends one of his men, Pindarus, to see how matters are progressing. From afar, Pindarus sees one of their leaders, Cassius's best friend, Tentinius being surrounded by cheering troops and concludes that he has been captured. Cassius despairs and orders Pindarus to kill him with his own sword. He dies, proclaiming that Caesar is avenged. Tentinius himself then arrives. The men encircling him were actually his comrades, cheering a victory he had earned. Tentinius sees Cassius's corpse and, mourning the death of his friend, kills himself. Brutus learns of the deaths of Cassius and Tentinius with a heavy heart and prepares to take on the Romans again. When his army loses, doom appears imminent. Brutus asks one of his men to hold his sword while he impales himself on it. Finally, Caesar can rest satisfied, he says, as he dies. Octavius and Antony arrive. Antony speaks over Brutus's body, calling him the noblest Roman of all. While the other conspirators acted out of envy and ambition, he observes, Brutus genuinely believed that he acted for the benefit of Rome. Octavius orders that Brutus be buried in the most honorable way. The men then depart to celebrate their victory. Ooh. Yeah. Stuff going on there. Whew. Okay. I I feel like we may have accidentally answered this, <laughs> but uh, did you like this play? Yeah, certainly. It's a it's a really deep play. I mean, like like there's a lot that goes on, and it doesn't. There's a couple of parts, like maybe in the first act or two, when they are setting up the conspiracy, where there are very lengthy conversations between Brutus and Cassius that might drag a little bit. But for the most part, this runs does run at a good clip, and it never stops, you know? Yeah. There's nothing that I think you really need to cut out, even though, like I said, there are parts that eh, might drag a little bit. But no, I, I really I really enjoy this play. Yeah. I'd say the only part that dragged for me was the end when they're at mm, the Yeah, that, that, there are parts of that where that – yeah, I could I could see that. But even so, it's it's a really well oh, – I mean, get a good production together, and it's a really well-staged play. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, of course, I chose it, so I like it. I don't think either of us have yet been sadists. And, um, wait, is that masochist? Masochist is self-harm. Yes. I don't think either of us have <laughs> have been masochists yet and chosen something we've despised. So No. I, I want to ask a question. We were sort of talking about this before the recording had started. As I was thinking about it today, I, I was reflecting on some of the, the great villains that Shakespeare has really come up with. And, you know, Lady Macbeth, someone could say, or Macbeth himself, Iago, absolutely. But here I was thinking, 
is there an actual, you know, tangible villain in this play? Not, in my opinion, not really. I mean, you can kind of see the other conspirators as villainous. Not Brutus, of course, but because Brutus's motivations are idealistic. You know, they're they're misguided, but they come from a very idealistic place. Cassius and them are more personally jealous. You know, they're they're they have more selfish aims, but they're not. I so I guess if if you're looking at at Antony and Caesar as the heroes of the story, Cassius might be the closest thing you have to a villain. But even then, mm-hmm. he's not he's not a villain in the mold of some of the other classic Shakespearean villains. Right. Yeah, and I think the only thing that would maybe push him to that edge is, to a certain extent, he uses Brutus because he knows that Brutus has this weight, this gravitas to him that people will really come to follow him. So I think he almost wants Brutus just for his namesake to be on their side rather than, you know, him know, you know. So And I think he's playing on Brutus's doubts at that point. And what really gets me is the fact that he forged all those letters because he was, you know, he said it, yeah. he basically has all these things, and Brutus will clearly think that all of those citizens really want it, but it was just him. And I think that was just duplicitous, unfortunately. For, yeah. For Brutus. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, let's talk about this guy, Brutus. Our first question is about his his motivation uh, for, for killing Caesar. It's obviously to preserve the ideals of the Roman Republic. As I said in the synopsis, he loved Caesar, he really did, but he loves Rome more. So considering what happens to the Republic following the events of the play, what do you think Shakespeare is saying about idealism and politics? Um, he's certainly pointing out an irony mm-hmm. in because um, anybody, even in our day and age, would know that the Republic didn't last very long after this because, I mean, it might take a moment for you to make – for the every person to make the connection that Octavius is Caesar Augustus mm-hmm. who – Anybody who knows from the book of Luke is the Caesar who set sure. for all the world to be taxed at the beginning of the of the of the birth of Christ. So mm-hmm. so so there's a historical connection there. And we and we know even then, even if you don't know it falls that quickly yeah. and, and becomes an empire, you know of the Roman Empire. So the irony there is that in in Brutus killing I don't know if it's it's ironic because he killed the dispersor of the Republic and the Republic fell anyway. There's this sort of I know it's a very Greek construct that you can't escape your fate, sure. and the idea is that if the Roman Republic was always fated to fall, and Brutus was trying to prevent that in an Oedipus sort of way, you know, like and any of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the story of Oedipus, he's fated to kill his father and marry his mother, and through very, very odd and twisty and turny circumstances, it actually happens and it happens while he's actively trying to avoid it. And the whole, one of the whole points of Oedipus is that you cannot avoid your fate and fate in ancient Greece is one of, it's like more powerful than the actual gods. You know, I don't know if, if Shakespeare's touching on that here or not, but there is certain, a certainly a little bit of of that flavoring in here. Mm -hmm. Idealism and politics. Maybe he is saying – I don't know if it's a knock against the Puritans because he hated the Puritans. Uh, the character of Malvolio in Twelfth Night is a satire of of 
you know the Purita- the Puritans who were in England at the time and would eventually take over the government at, at one point. And perhaps he's saying that like that sort of strict idealism has no place in politics. I but I'm, I might be stretching mm. quite a bit there because Brutus is not Puritan in that way. He's not he's not a villain. Malvolio is a villain in Twelfth Night. Sure. You know he's a he's a he's a real jerk. So, but perhaps Brutus, perhaps Caesar is saying that, like, you know, ambition is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And idealism, like, I don't know. I look at it as like idealism might be necessary. And it's good that idealism doesn't die. But at the same time, like, it, there are other, there are other forces among men that are more powerful. And, and I'm, you know, I use the word men because there are always men in Shakespeare, sure. although Mac- Lady Macbeth's a woman. Um, but like, if you look at Macbeth and Lear and, and some of the other plays he has where it is about power and it's about getting power and keeping power and becoming paranoid because you want to keep your power. Um, idealism has like no place in that. And he's, and the idealistic characters are, you know, never win, you know, uh, or if they win in the end, it's because like in the case of Macbeth, he became a tyrant. So, mm-hmm. you know, the system had to correct itself, but yeah. So perhaps he is saying that, um, that idealism's place is, it has a place, but it's always going to be overruled by like wish for personal gain, especially sure. if we go into Antony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like they don't mix well together because mm-hmm. I think someone might come in with an idea of what they would like, but then it's <laughs> yeah. I think the politics sort of mess it up with everything. So I think I guess, and it's interesting because I guess as Caesar. You know, the representation of the politics and Brutus is the idealistic one. Would you say that those are the, the two sides? Yeah. Brutus is definitely idealistic. Yeah. I can't get an entire read in Caesar. Caesar, Cassius is the selfish one, sure. you know, who's, who's kind of kind of on that. And it's almost like they're coming together. But Cassius, I don't want to say Cassius would have, would have forced Brutus out. But Cassius clearly was, had they survived the play Cassius would have manipulated his friend to his own ends anyway yeah yeah I feel like people go in with a certain idea and plan of how they want something to turn out and then politics just sort of mess it up because Octavian I mean he well I guess the politics are already sort of messing up he already believes he has that authority but even later on he he you know the golden age and he tries to the pox romana he tries to bring morality back and everything but then he gets swept up with everything too and you're absolutely right that it's ironic because brutus with his idealism you know tries to get rid of something that he feels like is going to destroy the state but it creates a power vacuum and unfortunately mm-hmm. someone's got to rise up again and you've got the same exact thing it not only destroys it's the fall of the republic which really starts with caesar anyways caesar versus pompey but then yeah. octavian coming into that role He's the first emperor. He's basically taking on all these. He'll be emperor as well as like consul sometimes in in the name. Yeah. So it, it gets out of control, starting with all of this that happened. Yeah, it's like Caesar and Pompey, and then Antony and Octavius in Antony and Cleopatra, and and in the history, it's like a series of almost civil wars or warring factions among the the ruling and the military class that. Which which would be common in the later Roman Empire as well, mm-hmm. you know, generals making power plays, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so power power corrupt, 
Pirates. Sure. Absolutely. Yes, an absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolutely, Do you yeah. think you could be a politician and have idealism? Do you think you can be an idealist and play the political game? I believe you can. Um, I think, however, that it's very, very hard to be an idealist and be dogmatic about your ideals. If I'm if I'm using the current American political system, you know, like the republic, the republic that's you know our republic right sure. now, yep. there are people who certainly have ideals on both sides of the aisle. There are people who are very, very much hold on to a certain ideal and don't deviate from it, whether they be conservative, liberal, libertarian, and you know whatever. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who do have ideals, but they they realize that they are playing a game of compromises mm-hmm. and. Sometimes it works in that they do get what they want or what their constituents want, and other times they essentially go so far that they've sold out. You know, thankfully, it's been 55 years since we've had a violent end to a uh, a, a ruler of our country, mm-hmm. and and it's been another 43 or 44 years since. Um, the 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 president um you know nixon resigned so it's been a while since we've had this sort of any sort of political upheaval in 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 that way in the way that you have like you know brutus and cassius and and caesar etc but i think that in your heart you can feel like you're idealistic i think many times people do compromise at least some of those ideals because they have to be practical you know, the idea that I don't know if Plato's allegory of the cave applies oh, here or not, but the ideal, but that sort of that ideal versus like the realist, the, the representation of the ideal, the representation ideal is a is a flawed representation. It's always going to be flawed. So mm. that's that's my my heavy philosophical sort of answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, whether it fits. Yeah, I think it, it sort of and sort of doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes it. Uh, I I feel like. We're sort of doomed to be disappointed. I think we come in with our mm-hmm. ideas, and I think, unfortunately, the system just doesn't allow all all of our ideas to come through. So it, it's the um, I'm going to go pop culture with a reference here, but there's a song by Billy Joel called "Angry Young Man," Ooh. and um, there's also another song by uh, what the heck's the name of the band? Against Me. Oh, it's called "I Was a Teenage Anarchist." Okay, and the idea that like in both of those songs. It talks about well the angry young man in the case of Billy Joel and you know whatever and the idea that as you as you get more and more into it and get in it or you get older in Billy Joel's case in the song like you realize that you know it's 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 a it's a no win situation if mm-hmm. you if you hold on too tight to those ideals and the case of I was a teenage anarchist like you know he sees he looks around and he sees all of the sort of snobbery and hierarchy and like you know he i think the the big line from that is like the revolution was a lie you know like it's just as corrupt as you know the purity's not there and and in the bridge and angry young man it's the idea that like he says i believe i passed the age of consciousness and righteous rage i found that just surviving was a noble fight so when you're young you have those ideals Mm -hmm. and it's possible because it comes from not having a lot of experience in life Mm -hmm. And there are people, there are young people who are certainly cynical. I've I've known many uh, over the course of my my day, but you know the idealist, the the idea that sort of stereotypical youthful idealism does eventually grow into 
sometimes a cynicism, but sometimes a more sort of leveled look at things, a more practical look at things, depending on, on what your beliefs are. But I always feel that we need that youthful exuberance and need that youthful idealism mm-hmm. um, as much as we do need the older cynical or older wiser people to kind of balance them out. The only people who have no place in our politics are um, racists, but <laughs> oh, old, old racists who need to die off. But that's, okay. that's my, that's my personal political opinion. I'm sorry if it, it offends anybody. It offends but no, I think, me, sir. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but but I, what I'm saying is that like, you know, I think idealism has its place, but eventually it gives way to practicality or there's something on the other side to, to um, balance it out. I do like that Cassius, even if it's inadvertent, is slightly more Machiavellian. He's the one, he's the one who suggests – is it he the one who suggests killing Antony? Yeah, yes. So Machiavelli would approve of that because if you want to become the king, you got to kill the king. But you also got to – got to get rid of the people who would oppose you yeah. after you become the king. And there's a lot more to it than that, you know. Mm-hmm. So Cassius is kind of thinking along those lines. So I, I thought it was interesting that he would approve that Machiavelli would probably approve of that idea, and then it would would shake his head at Brutus. It's like you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. It's not it, how any of this works. <laughs> well, he was trying to be better than everybody else. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And he get he get he gets played. Unfortunately. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you just looking at the events of the play? Do you think Caesar was a danger to the Republic? I don't know. I I, I want to say on one hand he might have been. That he would have – that basking in his glory, he was refusing the crown and he knew that that was the right thing to do because that's what – it was a very shrewd, calculated gesture. Mm. And perhaps he would have been a danger to the Republic later on after he had consolidated – he's already starting to consolidate power. Now, if he is shrewd, he doesn't take the crown there. He waits. He consolidates it some more. He builds up the support and then – takes a crown mm. if it's still if it's still a viable thing yeah and if it's not he doesn't i think that caesar was smart enough or at least the way i i've read this caesar would have been smart enough to do that to be shrewd enough to do that so on some level brutus was correct in his paranoia mm-hmm. but on the other hand like i said the irony is that because brutus killed caesar it jump-started the fall of the Roman Republic. It's hard because we're only getting the information from people, people who are Mm -hmm. clearly biased against him. Yeah, through Brutus and Cassius. Yeah, and he said, you know, he refused the crown three times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think also a stark speech is at the beginning, actually, with those two tribunes, because one of them was saying how, you know, just a short time ago, you... We're cheering for Pompey, and now you're cheering for Pompey's blood, basically, or the man who has killed Pompey. So there yeah. is something there as well where it seems like heroes are, are quickly turned into villains, and you have to be careful about whom you're trusting, I think, to, to lead your country. But it seems like on the just on the surface that it's not too bad, you know, if you're there, and it seems he's beloved by the people. But yeah. Yeah, it's just we're swayed, obviously, historically by those facts, but we're swayed by the, the people who are speaking about him. Yeah, that's true. And and it's so it's not an objective thing. And you don't – I mean Caesar is not as much of a three-dimensional character in this play mm. as, say, no. Brutus or Cassius. Right. Like Caesar really has one purpose in that this entire play, and that is to get stabbed. Right. And Shakespeare plays it that way. So mm-hmm. – 
I think he, maybe he's purposefully leaving it up to us to pass judgment on Brutus. Yeah. Because he's not Macbeth. No. You know, Macbeth would kill the king, but his ambition was to become king. And by the end of Macbeth, Macbeth has to die because Macbeth's the problem, right. you know, so it's a totally different thing. Yeah. You know, it makes you wonder what Cassius's plans were after that. Mm-hmm. What he had thought, I guess, I mean, because he, he was, Caesar was voted dictator for life, I guess his hope is that they would get back to the status quo and senators and consuls and things like that. But it doesn't really give us any insight, at least, hopefully I didn't miss anything, insight into what Cassius's plan would be to fill that void. Yeah, does he... Anything? No, I don't know, and, and I, I don't know if he steps in and fills the void after he... Um, does he does he kill Brutus? Does he throw Brutus to the wolves, so to speak, and turn things on him? Like yeah. kind of like a gang of four situation where like, you know, you in, in China after the Cultural Revolution where you you scapegoat Brutus mm, yeah. and the public the public tars and feathers him. If he doesn't execute him, he exiles him or takes prison. He essentially betrays Brutus. You know, and that would that would follow along the lines of Cassius being the more villainous of the main conspirators. Mm-hmm. But he gets his in the end anyway, so we never really get that scenario because Antony wins. Right. Yep. Do you think that Caesar is the tragic character? You said that he's he's killed pretty quickly, or do you think Brutus is a tragic character? I think it's Brutus. My Mrs. Mrs. Tabor, my sophomore year English teacher, used to say that the, this play really should be called The Tragedy of Marcus Brutus, mm. but nobody was going to go see a, tra- a play called The Tragedy of Marcus Brutus. Mm. But they would go see a play called The Tragedy of Julius Caesar yeah. because it was a well-known um, historical event. Sure. And, um, you know, it's it's a credit to Shakespeare for coming up with something that Hitchcock would do with Psycho. Mm which is kill oh. your lead in the middle of the play, <laughs> you know, kill the, kill the focus in the middle of the play. It's yeah. a shake. That wasn't Hitchcock's invention, but yeah, I think it's just, I think it really is Brutus's play mm-hmm. and he's the tragic character. I think that there's a, oops, sorry. I think there's a tragedy in the assassination of Julius Caesar in that you have a well-beloved figure who was killed and I don't think there's – like objectively you could say he was a well-beloved figure of history. Mm-hmm. Even maybe in that time, people would look at Caesar and be like, yes, this is, a, this is somebody who is, a, you know, who is to be looked up to. Mm-hmm. And he was m- mercilessly killed. But the play itself is, is – it tra- the tragedy arc is that of Brutus. Yeah, I wholly agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's all about I think his – internal and external turmoil and oh, betraying his friend and yeah but standing up for for what he believes in even though it's hard so yeah, yeah. well let's and the tough thing is is that by not making caesar like hateable if caesar was written as a jerk yeah. you know like you could still like in this play there's not a lot to caesar and we get stuff secondhand but at the same time like i never believed Either in history, I mean, history might prove me wrong if I read enough about Julius Caesar. I may be like, wow, this guy was like a tyrant. But in my view from reading this play, I don't get the sense that I'm supposed to believe Caesar was a tyrant. I am supposed to get the sense that Brutus and Cassius, especially Brutus, believe that Caesar could possibly be a tyrant. And in that case, they're like preemptively killing him. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're, they're, they're taking care of a problem they foresee is going to happen. And in my mind and in the Roman people's mind, like they're killing a great person. Mm -hmm. 
you know so that's that's what the the tragedy is like had they made caesar more villainous then you know brutus is more of a hero yeah well the next question was a leading question i would like to say that you have written down so first th- this is the question people why is Por- <laughs> why is Portia such a weak woman character especially considering that shakespeare would write and produce macbeth later on so i want to question my cohort tom and ask why you think she's a weak character he's just it's like i guess i'm so used to like lady macbeth who is scheming and assertive and Portia just seemed to me to be very passive and weepy and if it were where's her feigning couch you know oh, have the vapors you know that oh that sort of character and so there was a little bit of in my mind like that there's a weakness there but I don't know if, if he was doing that on purpose or if that's just you know like I, that's why I was asking him like why why is not she not more you know, assertive. Why doesn't she have the strength that Brutus obviously, obviously does? Mm. Okay. <laughs> I just couldn't believe you were leading it already to assume that she's a weak character. I don't like Ophelia. She just seemed that way to me. Ophelia is probably one of my least favorite female characters. I actually didn't have as much a problem with Portia here. But Ophelia is the one in Hamlet, right? Oh, you've not read Hamlet. Yeah, I, but I know... I, okay. I know I know of Ophelia so much so that I know that I know a lot of people who actually really like the character. I don't have any judgment on Ophelia because I really am not that familiar with Hamlet. It's it's a blind spot for me that has to be rectified. So <laughs> so I'm gonna, I just but I wanted you to know that's that is a character that a, a number of friends of mine actually love that character, and so I I <laughs> kind of take them at their word because sure. I don't know you know I don't know what I'm supposed to like or not like about Ophelia. But um, so I'm curious as to like. Maybe if we, when we do eventually tackle Hamlet, <laughs> Hamlet yeah. so we'll table that for sure. our discussion on Hamlet. Yes, but, but it I is just interesting to, to say, hear somebody yeah. say they don't like Ophelia yeah, when I, I she's got almost got like a cult following. That's interesting. I had no I idea she had yeah. a cult following. I just find her annoying, frankly, and I more care for uh, who is Othello's beloved. It doesn't matter. But all that to say that I, you know, when looking at Portia, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't see that. I guess I can see what you're saying. Because, you know, the first time you see her, she comes up to her husband and is asking what's wrong and why aren't you talking to me, basically. But, you know, I, I, I like the fact that she is pleading with him to confide in her because clearly he's troubled and it might loosen the burden to speak to her. And, you know, what is this marriage? Are, you know, are we just two people that share a cage, as Tennessee Williams said, in Cat on a Hat, Ten Roof? Or, you know, are, is there actually something about it? And if your perception is correct, then perhaps she is so weighed down by these strong men that are around her. We, you know, her father was Cato, um, who was actually defeated by he sided with Pompey so you've got strong right there you've got Brutus there as well so maybe she's just not had her freedom to to speak out but I feel like there is a strength in Portia and how she's acting with Brutus and her talk of um their marriage and everything and then I guess to play devil's advocate to myself what you might also think is about her suicide at the end because the way Brutus frames it is that 
basically she couldn't go on without him, you know, as he was over at Philippi. And I can see that as being like, a, oh, gee, you know, she couldn't go on without him. But on the other side, I wonder how safe she really was from danger because you've got the triumvirate basically, like, rubbing their fingers together, uh, Mr. Burns style, and marking <laughs> people down on a list because that list, yeah. which was... So, like the most villainous scene, I would say, in that entire play. And mm-hmm. here, she's got someone who, number one, had sided against Caesar. Her father had sided against Caesar. Yeah. And her husband had killed Caesar. So she's actually in a dangerous position. So she's not only, it's not the, just the fact that Brutus is not there with her. It's that he's not there with her to protect her. And she was, by affiliation, on the wrong side. So suicide was probably the more honorable thing to do than be captured or, you know, killed or, or whatever. Uh, we can talk about suicide and Roman ideas about that. But, you know, mm-hmm. I can see what you're saying. I see what you're getting at. But I feel like there is a strength in her. And perhaps it's it's hard to talk about her too much because she has a couple speeches. She only appears, I think, in two scenes. So really, mm-hmm. what what is there to get out of her? But I think there is something. You are absolutely correct. She's an old Lady Macbeth. I don't think really anyone can, can attest to be Lady Macbeth, with the exception of Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca. <laughs> oh. um, but, yeah. So I think there are some things that we can get out of Portia, but I could just be misreading. No, them. but I, just thinking about it and, and skimming the um, – you mentioned her speech in Act 2, Scene 1, Lines 237 to 302, which I opened up and I skimmed a little bit. You know, I think I think you've got a point and I think you're more right. I think I was looking at it where I was making almost like a false comparison between – a character like Lady Macbeth and that, and which is what you really shouldn't do because it's, even though it's the same writer, writers don't always write every, every type of character the same exact way. You know, it is possible for a writer to even this day and age to write women in different works in different ways because women are humans and they're just as complex as anybody else, you know, like, so, so, so I think I was just making a false comparison. The other thing I, I, um, the, and you're right about that, that scene with the triumvirate and and kind of, (laughs) and, and I also like, there's almost that implied idea that, um, whoever they don't take care of the mob might take care of, like not the mafia, but the, but the, like the, the fury of the Roman people. Cause they go after that one guy, um, Cinna, Oh, and, but yeah, he's like the, the sin of the poet yeah. and they trample him him to death because he has the same name and they're like, you know, so it's basically that sort of mob mentality. And, you know, if, if Rome, if, if they have the option, if they want to, to let, to keep stoking that fire and have the problem, quote, take care of itself too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think you've actually, you've got, you made a better point than I did. Um, by the way, Desdemona. Aha, uh-huh, that's the, who it was. Yeah. There's actually a song it about it. If we ever do Othello, <laughs> I already – it's so weird. But you, like, listen to music and then all of a sudden they have, like, these cultural references. You're yeah. like, where did that come from? So I've been, like, stockpiling them in the back of my mind. Yeah, I was, there was a Gaslight Anthem song I was listening to that made references. It's called Great Expectations, but it actually made references to the book. Like, I was like, oh, that's impressive. So, mm, wow. And I'm sure that we will do plenty of Shakespeare over the course of our time on this show because there's plenty of such good Shakespeare, you know, like, you know, well, speaking of suicide, I think I would like to talk about this. So Romans viewed it as honorable and it's uh, very similar to 
I would say, the Japanese culture with the samurai. Yeah, I was going to say samurai culture. Yeah. So the Romans, this is especially true for soldiers, right? If you're out there and there might be a chance that you're going to be getting captured, it is better to kill yourself than be captured. And there, I think there's, you know, a logic to it. We can't mm-hmm. dis- just dismiss it out of hand because that was their belief system. But, of course, the Christian world, which is when this play would have been written, mm-hmm. would view it, does view it as a sin, right? Depending Especially the Catholics. The Catholics, that is one of, yeah. that's a mortal sin. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think Shakespeare is saying about suicide in this play, if anything? You've got a whole host of suicides at the end, of course. That would be the main part, yeah. Yeah, so we have we have Cassius mm-hmm. essentially commit suicide. Mm-hmm. He has Pindarus kill him. Right. It's it's suicide. Yes, assisted um, suicide. Titinius kills himself when he sees Cassius dead. Right. Portia kills herself. Yep. And then of course Brutus yep. kills himself. And then I go back to the passion involved in the suicides at the end of Romeo and Juliet because they both kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is out of, I can't live without you, passion. Mm-hmm. So he might be saying something different in that play than in this one. I, maybe perhaps he is saying that he is drawing on those typical warrior ideals. And it's interesting that you bring up the Japanese because Shakespeare has been done in in Japanese cinema. Um, <gasps> the, yes. You ever see Ron? No, Ran, but there's Ran yeah. by Kurosawa. No. That's King Lear, okay. and it's so. If you if you get the chance to see it, it is phenomenal. It's such a good movie. My mom just got Throne of Blood, which is based off of Macbeth. Yeah, so Christmas. so, yeah. and if you think of, and I know, I know, I'm stereotyping sort of Japanese culture. And Don would probably rake me over the coals for this by basically calling on what knowledge I have of like ninja and samurai movies. Mm-hmm. But um, but the idea of honor is really important in in those in that genre. All right, so maybe not in Japanese films, but in that genre at least. And and I see the parallel here of that sort of and it's and you notice it's these high high class, high in society, high in stature people like Brutus and Cassius and these are people who sure. are in the upper echelons of Roman society this isn't like you know plebeius the plebe you know who you know this isn't the <laughs> you know this isn't the guy who 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 sweeps the vomitorium you know it's it's um he's a senator they're senators so perhaps there's something about that that there's like you know great great warriors deserve honorable deaths and this is an an honorable death it's also perhaps the tragedy of of Brutus and perhaps the, the fact that it is a tragedy, he's also mixing that idea of Christianity in there. Mm. That you do wonder, had Brutus survived, would he have been executed? Possibly. Um, he might have been brought back and humiliated and then publicly executed or something. But at the same time, there's no, you know, there's no, there, there, there's, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. And, and perhaps Shakespeare's mem- Perhaps Shakespeare's bringing in a little bit of that Christian. Um, it would have been the Anglicans at this point, right? Yeah, Henry VIII had died already. So he's bringing in a little of that Christian idea of suicide being a sin. So that's where the tragedy part comes in. Do you think maybe he tries to make it ambiguous, whether it's a suicide, by having some people assist them? Like Portia, obviously. So maybe there is being something said about uh, the woman there. But with Brutus and... and- Cassius, sorry. With Brutus and Cassius, they're not holding their own sword. So do you think he tr- tries to make it a little ambiguous so it's more maybe allowable 
in the current culture that it was portrayed not not in the roman culture but in the english culture very possible i think that's i think that's a good way to explain it Portia's death reminds me a little bit of Jocasta's in uh, in Oedipus. Mm. The idea that she's so overcome with the grief and, and everything, and and the the perhaps even the shame of what has happened, that she she hangs herself. I think you've got a really really good point about how that it's it's assisted suicide. So it's not like you know suicide suicide. It's and then the 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 death of Titinius is more passion driven. Right. Yeah. Well, in the same way yeah. that, that Romeo and Juliet, it's it's passion because it's over friendship and it's not over over political ideals yeah. and things. I wonder I don't know if you know this, maybe you do, but do you think suicide was high at this time in the sixteenth century? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I mean it's such a weird question to ask. I just wonder what, what it was. I have like. no idea. I don't know. I don't know if if and and you know we both you know with with the Christian and Catholic view of Scripture we're both um, pulling on our own notions of what it is, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily know how seriously that was taken back then either. You know. Yeah, I yeah I I've actually recently been researching and just for fun samurai culture and uh-huh. uh, I was astounded. I had no idea about. I knew about the seppuku. Uh, which is, yeah. you know, their honorable way of suicide. But I guess there's mass suicide surrounding that too. Like if your leader did that, then often the people surrounding him would also do it. So yeah. it's very interesting, the suicide culture. So I am, I just, as you looked at it, I am at, and I don't know the, the reliability of this site, but it's called Internet Shakespeare Editions. It's internetshakespeare.uvic.ca. So it's out of Canada. And I want to say maybe University of Victoria, and they do have a entry on suicide. And in the second paragraph, it says suicide in Shakespeare's time was a paradoxical issue. On one hand, it carried the medieval Christian associations of shame and despair. Yet on the other hand, it was seen as a noble and courageous act in the growing Renaissance tradition of secular gentlemanly honor. The model of death before dishonor was at the heart of the courtly ideals which many Renaissance humanists derive from classical sources. Both Dunn and Mont- Montaigne. Montaigne, M-A-M-O-N-T-A-I-G-N-E, I think it's Montaigne, um, defend suicide under circumstances mm-hmm. in their writings. The Christian attitude was embodied by the biblical Judas, while the classical tradition often held up the dramatist and philosopher, philosopher Seneca as the example of a noble suicide. A contemporary of Shakespeare who was caught up in the debate over suicide was Walter Raleigh, a well-known public f- figure who attempted suicide. So. Wow. I don't know how many suicides there were, but mm-hmm. that I think does shed a little light about the Absolutely. the conflict, the the what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I would like to talk about the supernatural and what role mm-hmm. it played in this particular play. Do you feel like it helped or distracted from? Well, does it further or distract from the play? I think it lends itself well to the play because it's a trope of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Like it's this isn't the only play where he's got the supernatural. Banquo's ghost and the witches and Macbeth, Hamlet. I believe there's supernatural stuff going on in Hamlet. You know, there's uh, the Tempest is all sorts of weird. Midsummer Night's Dream is all sorts of crazy with the supernatural fairies and things. So the idea that these things would be in a Shakespeare play is not out of the ordinary. So it's not anything that I particularly really thought detracted. I thought it was just part. Of, I just accepted it as part of the. Of, of the play, I can see where a bad director or producer 
would ham that part up though mm. you know yeah. like really badly that that could go really badly so when you're handling shakespeare because he doesn't he doesn't overemphasize it in the in the script um he doesn't overemphasize it in his in his play it's just there you know and there's it's not just the ghost but it's like crazy storms and stuff going on like you know all this sort of stuff that if you left it to the background i think it wouldn't attract at all but if you're if you're a crappy director that becomes like you know the bad lightning flash in the cheesy old horror movie you know yeah. like, you know what i mean so yeah. i think it works especially with the culture because mm-hmm. their belief system was surrounded in this in you know the gods giving them signs and things like that so the soothsayer saying beware the odds of march the actual the augury the the surgery performed no, I shouldn't say surgery but the sacrifice performed on I can't remember the animal and there was no heart and then the uh-huh. thunder and lightning and things like that I think it really works well the ghost took me out of it a little bit I thought it was a little strange I'm of two minds with that one but at the same time spirits and ghosts and visions often do pop in to uh, epics and things like that I can't recall if any visit. Odysseus, but like in the Aeneid, for example, Hector is the one that wakes Aeneas from his dream and tells him Troy's burning down, you need to take the gods and leave. So I can see, you know, Caesar coming back, you know, obviously as as a spirit and uh, visiting Brutus, but that was just like the weird one, because all the other ones, I felt like this really works, but then that one, I was like, oh man, now it's all of a sudden turned into Hamlet! So that was my <laughs> only thing, because I wanted it to be really distinct from anything else, but at the same time, I can see how it works. Yeah, I can see that too. Once you read Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, 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 you know, I can see where it would detract because it's not, the supernatural is not central to the play. Mm-hmm. Like with Macbeth, it's like right up there, front and center in some regards. The three witches and the prophecies and then Banquo and Banquo's, you know, and all these things that are there happening. Like, so when Banquo's ghost shows up at the banquet and he flips out and nobody else is like, what the hell's going on with this guy? That's totally accepted and it's totally expected. But so I could see where Caesar's ghost does take you out a little bit, but thankfully it's not a scene that is hammed up, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and overdrawn. Yeah. I was trying to figure out why he kept running out and asking people, well, basically saying, You called, didn't you? Or you spoke, didn't you? And I guess he was just trying to make sense of the vision. Is that what you got? Because he wakes Possibly. his servant up and then he calls other people. Mm hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was interesting yeah. watching the adaptation that I did last night because he's clearly engaging with the spirit and then he's got to go and double check and everything. It was interesting. Yeah. And he's he doesn't quite go all the way with the sort of I'm seeing the ghost and that's the mental imbalance and then I'm going to have to die sort of track that Shakespeare's characters sometimes go on. Yeah. So um, he doesn't go all the way with that. He, he does die sort of nobly in a way, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I want to move on to Antony, who has a big role that we've not really spoken of. And it's interesting mm-hmm. how well he's portrayed here. Yeah. Because according to Cicero, because he's done some, um, his Philippics, he's made fun of Antony, which is why Cicero is on the prescription list, may I add. And I should say, as a little aside, Cicero was played by Alan Napier in the 53 version. Oh, really? Yeah, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> but anyway, so he's portrayed as like a frat boy and just always drinking and everything. Thing. And so here you've got like this lovely little representation of uh, Antony being this pretty intelligent guy. But anyways, I want let's talk about his oration first. It seems like 
his speech is more effective than Brutus's. Do you agree with that? And why do you think that it is more effective? I think it, I, I agree with it because I think that and, – and people who study like Oratory 101 will look at this speech because of the way it, he is a master of the emotional appeal and the master of appealing to the everyman and using rhetorical um, devices like uh, – you know the parallelism and the and you know the and the, that repeating repeating the phrase for Brutus is an honorable man and like having it become more and more sarcastic because he knows he's got he can manipulate the crowd and and it's it's a more effective speech that way because he really he plays to the crowd and speaks at them and with them rather than above them and a Brutus comes off as disconnected and that Brutus is it gives a very intelligent speech but Brutus plays to his ideals and his reasons and to his Brutus and to his senators yeah. rather than playing to his audience. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the big mistake he makes. The other mistake he makes is by letting Antony go second. Yeah. Now, granted, granted, I'm sure that if Antony had made that speech before Brutus, they would have already started running Brutus out of town. Sure. So I don't think Brutus would have been able to make his speech. But at the same time, like, yeah. So I think Antony's speech is, is way, way more effective. There's something very, um, Kennedy about Mark Antony. JF Kennedy? Yeah, or just uh, any of the Kennedy, like any of the the big three Kennedys, Jack, Bobby, or Teddy, like that idea that you were talking about how, you know, how was it Cicero has Antony like being basically like frat bro type of thing. And it's just, it's kind of just interesting to see the parallel between somebody like uh, Antony, who's always been, who has been portrayed by people like Marlon Brando and like 50s Brando, you know, not. Not Seth, not Godfather Brando, no, no. But like matinee idol Brando, you know. Yeah. And and uh, I think Richard Burton played him in um, Cleopatra. And Richard Burton was no slouch. He was a good-looking guy. Yep. Antony is the matinee idol of the Romy. He's he is he's a very pretty man, and and at least that's always been my impression of him. So that's why I was like, oh, there's something very very Kennedy, or maybe there's something very Mark Antony about you know, the Kennedys. Yeah. So that's that's conjecture on my part. I love the fact that there are two powerhouses. They both mm-hmm. have a close relationship with Caesar. And so it's just coming down to what words they say because I think position-wise, they both, they're very different, but um, the people can respect what they have to say. It's just what they have to say. So it all comes down to the words. <laughs> I do have to remark, though, how easily swayed I think the people are because, you know, they did agree oh, come with on. Brutus. Of course. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah Antony's right. Antony's right. So that's somewhat comedic, oh, I guess. That's I'm... just, it's it's <laughs> almost like, it's almost like the masses What's the old quote of like? Was it Mencken who said like nobody ever went broke underestimating, uh, overestimating the stupidity of the American public or something like that? Mm-hmm. And the idea that like you know, and this is really sno- snooty to say, but like the masses have always been like easily manipulated mm-hmm. yeah. by and and you know we talk about how you know how nowadays you hear people talk about how like the general people general populace is dumb. And they act like it's something new, but you go back like here and it's like, no, there have been just very ignorant masses throughout history that were being manipulated by those in power. And it goes back to, you know, the the church through the Middle Ages. It goes back through people like, you know, the emperors of Rome and and even earlier than that, you know, Mm -hmm. the idea that 
you know, it's 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 nothing it's nothing new. It's almost like a foundation of politics. Yeah. I think one of the reasons for me that it's so successful is how passionate Antony is. Mm-hmm. And Brutus is passionate, but I don't know if equally so. I don't want to say that Brutus is at this point resigned to, to you know what has happened because I think there is some still emotional turmoil. But compared to Antony, I mean Brutus, he decided on a course of action, and he was basically like probably the killing stroke of, yeah. of Caesar here. And he's pretty calm. It seems calm, cool, and collected. Probably depends on how the portrayal is. You know, talking with everyone and what the plan is going forward. Antony, with what emotional struggle and, and physical struggle must have been shaking the hands of each of the conspirators and, and mm-hmm. you know, being calm and collected, and then having that, you already know that he was sort of feigning this uh, this peace and calm because afterwards is when he says wreak havoc uh, as yeah, and, he stands and lets the dogs of war, right, yeah. right as he's with that body and when he comes out that passion and fervor is still there and so I yeah. think while Brutus did in fact love Caesar uh, he's not talking about Caesar you know he's talking about pushing forward and something else and Antony is there mourning over Caesar's body so he's got a prop, and he's got his passion and his – he really does – it sounds really bad, yeah. but he has a prop. And, oh, yeah. you know, he's got his passion. I think it's just the emotion, the raw emotion, and people can see it, how heartbroken he is. And, you know, the sarcasm and everything I think plays really well with – he's an he, what did, uh, you know, Brutus called him ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. And just mad, yeah. The repetition, the anaphora of that all, I think it's just mm-hmm. really well done, but I think it's that passion, that emotion, that makes his speech more successful. Yeah, and, and um, one of the, I don't know why I remember this, but one of the vocabulary words we had back in the 10th grade for Julius Caesar was the word stoic. Mm. And Brutus is clearly Absolutely. more stoic of a character. Yes. It's just, it's his personality. So he would give a very reasoned, intelligent speech, and that's what he does. But you're right, Anthony is, Anthony is emotional, he is passionate, and and he uses that to his advantage and, and really feeds off of this is the other thing he's emotional passionate and he knows how to feed off the energy of his crowd and he knows how to get them to feed off of him and and that's that's really really important to an orator who is making that emotional appeal as opposed to the logical appeal i mean what's the three appeals of argument logos pathos and ethos yeah and yeah it's funny you bring up the stoicism because there was a discussion between two characters about stoicism or a mention. Mm-hmm. I can't recall who the two characters were at this point. Neither moment. can I. <laughs> it may have been Brutus or something, but yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right because I mean, it's similar to like the Greeks, right? When the Greeks spoke, they were very calm, cool, and collected. And they also, however, thought a long time about what they're about to say and only spoke very few words. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Should we also ask why it's so memorable or do you think we answer that as, as we talk I, about I it? Think we i just it's because there's there's the cry havoc lifts the dogs of war but then there's like you know the the very famous line that has been quoted and requoted and used and reused was just friends (laughs) romans countrymen let me your ears i come to bury caesar not to erase him and then what's the other line from that speech like the the Mm -hmm. evil that men do lives after them the good is often turned with their bones so let it be with caesar and and that intro to that is is very much quoted and requoted and requoted. So, and I it just I think it's because it's uh, it's honestly, and I, I don't I'm going to say that that's Shakespeare and not any record of Antony's actual funeral funeral oration. 
unless you have other historical evidence to the contrary. I and that's, don't. I wouldn't be able to, yeah, comment on that. I, I mean, think it's that, Shakespeare, yeah. It's, I mean, and that but is Shakespeare. To, you know, like, yeah. that is just, it's, that's what elevates sure. a play like this. It's yeah. things, orations, it's, it's those things. And you notice, too, I, I'm not going to sit here and play out with the, um, with the uh, meter, but the way Brutus, at least in my edition, the way Brutus's speech, it's a block of justified text and it almost reads like prose. Yes. Antony's, I'm pretty sure, is written in iambic pentameter. Which I've asked a question about that before because that happens in Hamlet a couple times. And mm-hmm. I think it depends. I think in Hamlet it would do that if, like, the character were sort of lower class or, like, more common. Speech would have been, yes. like, the. The justified more, as you were talking, more pro, yeah, but that's like interesting because I mean Brutus isn't. You know, if I were no, to pick the two not. of them, I would have said I guess Antony because yeah. he's a military man. So that's it. What do you? Th- what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think he would do that? I think Shakespeare wants to use it to emphasize the power of Antony's words. Okay. So he literally makes Antony's speech poetic and makes Brutus more prosaic because Brutus is using the. Logos argument, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. because he's making the logical argument, but Antony's there's the pathos is in there. He's making the emotional argument. So the logical, the academic argument is not going to be poetic. And Antony making the emotional argument is going to be poetic. So it's clever. It's really clever. That it is. Well,. My last question is, in fact, about Antony. What about Antony's emotional nature tells us that his passion is both an asset and a liability? I think I'd cover the asset part, that he can get people on his side, yeah. the masses on his side. The, the liability part, I think, comes out in the, in the other play, in Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, the I idea that, that. that he is too controlled by his passions right. and that that allows Octavius to take the to move in and, and make his move, which sure. we, which I think you, you mentioned in your, um, I think in your synopsis, you mentioned that Octavius kind of does his own thing during the battle and it foreshadows, um, he is not Antony's sidekick. No. You know, Octavius has his agenda and he will, he will enact that agenda when the time is right. Right. Yeah. The thing to know about triumvirates is that it's not, you know, a sanctioned political alliance it's an informal alliance, and it's usually between rivals. It's, you know, they each have something that the other wants and can give, and so they help each other out, but it's usually very flawed and very weak. I mean, the first one had Julius Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey, and we know mm-hmm. what happened between Julius Caesar and Pompey, and Pompey and Crassus hated each other. And then, yeah, in this that scene with, of course, the prescriptions and then Lepidus yeah. leads, then Antony starts talking to August, uh, sorry, to Octavian Fear, about yeah. <laughs> pre-Augustus Octavian about you know get rid of Lepidus because he's basically a dud, which he certainly yeah. is. But you know, yeah. so yeah, I, you can certainly tell that his passions could potentially get him in trouble, but yeah. they help out a little bit. It was fascinating. This does bring to mind to the more modern example, although it didn't exactly happen this way, of um, the Second World War and Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. Oh, and the idea that. At least, you know, um, Stalin and and you know Churchill and Roosevelt were essentially on the opposite sides of a political 
spectrum, but they both they all came together because they had a common enemy, right. which was uh, Adolf Hitler. Yep. So it's just it's just interesting that that idea, that classic idea of a triumvirate, political triumvirate, is uh, still plays out in the world. Did anyone give a daughter to? Stalin Not that I'm aware of. I just wondered. They always do that. <laughs> that would have I mean, back up maybe a hundred years, and that that I mean, Absolutely. like if you look at the First World War, you have all of these countries going to war with each other because they had alliances, and like half of them were related to each other sure. in some way or another, you know. So it did happen. It still happened. It's what I love. Yeah. I love that about history, though. I love how things from hundreds, thousands of years ago still apply in relationships and cycles and things like that. That's that's what I, I really enjoy about history. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap this up, my question for you is, would you teach this play? Uh, this is a standard that is on a lot of curricula, especially for sophomores still. It was not on the curriculum when I was teaching 10th grade. I did consider it, um, but I, I backed off on it oh. because I th- – think we didn't have enough copies to be completely honest with oh you and the other thing what was, a reason the, well that was part of it the practicality was part of it um and the other thing was the students i was teaching it was very it was very tough to get them to do anything so this i don't know if this would have worked um but i i think i would i think it's a play that i would take a stab at teaching Because I think the – especially the – everything from the death and the funeral oration and everything, you could really um, dive into both the history behind it and the, the persuasive arguing. I mean there's a lot to mine Absolutely. from this play if you can if you can make it. And I think even even like lower level – and I, I, I don't mean that in the pejorative, just like in the – just sort of in the practical like you know classification sense – I think they could get on board with it if it's presented in a way that is engaging to them because I think Shakespeare has a bad rap in high school because he's just got a reputation of being, oh, my God, it's Shakespeare. Like it's this thing, you know, it's like this thing that looms and you're like, you know, it's really great stuff and it's funny. And if you see it or hear it performed, it's it's funny and it's tragic and it's beautiful and it's it's just amazing and in a lot of places i i personally do love do love the time i've spent with shakespeare oh i do i love I like shakespeare. besides the friar you had one job yes 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 we'll eventually get to that and i would teach it i would teach it i I'm trying to think of where i could put well could you do a lesson on like adaptation and interpretations of history through historical fiction yeah i think that's certainly an option i think it probably be better served in Latin 3, which I don't actually teach because my colleague does the late Republic and then transitions over for me. Mm. Uh, and then I take them and do like the AP stuff I have um, gotcha. is uh, commentaries on the Gallic War and then of course the Aeneid. So it'd be interesting for him to do that. Like I said, uh, sometimes I like to pair up. So they have translations in their little book and I like the ones about the historical like early Roman heroes and things like that. So if we read something, or before they translate, I always usually give them a translated copy of, like, the actual historical thing from, like, Livy or somebody like that. And so I like to pair it that way so they have a good sense of the context going in before they start translating. And so I wish I could do that with Caesar. I just feel like 
I mean, it's possible. I would love to. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I could always make my way. Like I said, I would love to do Coriolanus because there's a translation at the end of the year that I'm going to make as like the capstone project instead of an exam. And I want to somehow tie in Coriolanus, but I got to figure it out how. Yeah, so I, I think absolutely. I think it's worthwhile historically as well as just the beauty of the language and, of course, the wonderful speeches. Yeah. Um, before we get to feedback, I do want to make a plug for another show. It's it's not one of ours. It's not one of the TTF or any of that. There's a there's a if, if you're ever interested in in later Roman history, there's a excellent podcast out there. Um, the narr the the host is named Patrick Wyman. He has a PhD in um, later Roman studies. It's called The Fall of Rome. He's also got another one called The Tides of History, where he alternately covers the fall of Rome and then the rise of nations in in the late later Renaissance. And it's part of the one. It's put up by Wondery, that you know, the pod, the, one of the big podcast conglomerates. But I've listened to every episode, and he takes it by looking at specific topics. So he's going a little chronologically, but it's like you know, there's a topic, for instance, like Roman Britain, and he f specifically focuses on Roman Britain. And he focuses on like the military and the economy and certain years or whatever. And he'll do those things where, like, imagine if you're like, let's imagine that this guy named. Hieronymy or whatever, like or or, or Rigloff or whatever this character's <laughs> name is, or or Bruticus or whatever, Bruticus. and like he he uses this one guy as like the example, and like this is what his life is like, and he really makes it. He would be a great teacher to listen to lecture because he really does his best to relate all of this PhD stuff, and he did his dissertation on the fall of the Roman Empire, make it more accessible to a more general audience. So I would recommend go search out the fall of Rome and also search out the podcast tides of history. And, um, they're both on through wondery and, uh, it's some great, great, interesting stuff. What year does he start? Can't remember off the top of my head. Cause you said later Republic, right? Or later, later empire. So hey, it's oh, the fall of the okay. Roman empire. Ah. That's why I said it's later Roman so history. It's, like it's East and West has already been divided. Um, yeah, he goes, he, he covers the East West schism okay. at one point, you know, um, but I think he starts in like the three hundreds, maybe a little earlier. So yeah. So like he, he did do an episode of like, why did the Roman empire split? Gotcha. So he, you know, he covers and he traces the various things. So it's not like he starts at one point and he's going year to year to year. He's covering it like topic by topic, which I also really enjoyed because you start to realize how messy the fall of the Roman Empire is. Oh, yeah. As opposed to like, um, you know, it's, you know, it's not like the, the bombing of Hiroshima and then the Japanese Empire was done. You know, it's it's not that clean cut in terms of an end. So Very cool. So you want me to go ahead and get into feedback? We have we have two things from Robert Ward. That guy. Um, our classic book buddy. Yes. We have an iTunes review, which I'm going to read, and then we have an email that that will uh, that will tackle. So the iTunes review, he gave us five stars, and this goes back to December 11th. I hadn't um, in our last episode, I hadn't checked the iTunes uh, the iTunes feed uh, for reviews, so that's why I, I didn't get around to this. But please, if if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, we really do appreciate them. And he says, graphic novels, established classics, newer release, and more. And he says, two friends, both teachers, sit down and discuss one book that the other has decided to force upon the other. I like that. It's a pretty foolproof and delightful premise that can't go wrong. I've taken upon myself to read along and read every book that's covered. I've missed a couple, but it is a personal challenge. I look forward to look toward every month. 
I'm nowhere near as intelligent as Stella and Tom, so I greatly appreciate the in-depth discussion covering themes and their individual thoughts on the books that always seems to give me weeks of chewing to go over. Graphic novels establish classics. Their new releases every month is a new selection that is guaranteed to leave an impression and leave you leave you wanting more of these two. So thank you very much. We really do appreciate this, the feedback and the review. And uh, here's his email. So he says, Dear Stella and Tom, um, and this is uh, – most of this is going to be about Charlotte's Web. So he says, I, for one, was surprised by the choice of Charlotte's Web, but deeply appreciative of it. I can't count how many years it's been since I last read it last and love the opportunity to revisit now it is adult. I have to say the image of a little piglet crying out, I don't want to die, has been haunting me ever since now. Oh, so dear. thanks for that. <laughs> that is a sad moment. It's like yeah. – and I guess like, even now as an adult, it is one of those there's, – there's a couple of really tense moments in that book where you're just like – it's hard to find somebody cold hard enough who doesn't have some sort of emotional reaction to that and to Charlotte's death at the end of the novel. You know, it's like even as an adult, you're just like, oh, man. Yeah. Spider's death. Um, he also says, as to return to Jane Eyre briefly, I'm simply just going to concede <laughs> in bafflement. Oh, man. I don't agree with Stella's defense, but at the same time, it's a perfect example of why I'm listening to the show. I loved your impassioned speech. However, we are not—we are just not going to be seeing eye to eye. I simply disagree and may never understand this romance at the book's core as you do. Maybe someday I'll grow wiser and things will change as to shift my position, but it seems unlikely at the moment. Oh, well. Thank you for a wonderful year of shows, and may the incoming year bless you with many new discoveries on the paperback front. Your classic book, buddy. Robert Ward. So that was our, our piece. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I, I don't have any, any comments aside from My the one I had about Charlotte's My first comment Web. is that we are no smarter than you. It, that yeah. popped up in your <laughs> iTunes, man. We're just, we just really love literature and we like talking about it. And mm -hmm. Tom and I have both have expertises <laughs> in different areas. So uh, we can each educate each other on certain things. And so I uh, don't ever think that we're more intelligent than you. And, you know, one of my favorite things is – that people read along with us. So we're like getting people to read, not only just listen to our podcast, but to read. And just the excitement of, you know, when he hears what next book it is and he goes and picks it up. I really like that, so I really appreciate that. As for Jane Eyre, um, please, I you know, the whole I'll grow wiser, <laughs> don't think it that I'm wise, that I like it. I just, you know, I think it's one of those things that you like what you like and sometimes it's hard to explain. And for me, it's hard to explain why I enjoy Jane and... Edward's relationship when I know on the surface it looks pretty damaging, but I just do and I think, you know, you can care for the novel potentially without enjoying that relationship too much, but just really like Jane and don't think that I'm wiser than you I just I just enjoy it and I'm sure there are things that you enjoy that I might not <laughs> enjoy, so yeah, just one of those things. I also will say that like, you know, um, and I hope this happens with people who, who um, read along with us or listen, like you'll ask questions in like in our show notes and stuff. Sure. And there are times when I'm like, and I can't think of a specific time, but there are times when I'm like, Oh, I missed that. Or like, so like you, I don't know if I do the same for you, but you wind up pointing out things to me like Porsche's uh, Porsche. Sure. In this just episode that like I missed or glossed over or, you know, like, or I go back and re skim and I'm like, Oh yeah. And, and that's kind of the beauty of reading and rereading or something like, you know, all the things that you, and it's not like you're you're dumb for missing it the first time. You're just like you know you're you're focused on something else or whatever. Sure. Or you're you and I are bringing different perspectives in some cases or different different things to it, and and we we spot that. And I'm like, and that's that's what I love about um, 
that's what I love about having having these discussions. Absolutely. Well, I guess now it's that time. Yes. When we get to find out that you are deciding to have us read Fifty Shades of Grey. Ugh. <laughs> Oh man! Yes. Do what I, are we? What are, am I? Am I Donovan working Grant? Oh man, he let me down so bad. He's the one who goes sees those movies and then he tells me about them, and he's refused. He's refused because he was disappointed by the middle one to see the third one. So now I'm left wondering what happens to Anastasia and Christian. So we're gonna stick along the lines of <laughs> of, of, of not yes yes of not yeah we're not we're not going into the S and M territory no. yet. We'll, maybe we'll have an extensive look at the Marquis de Sade or something Ooh. like that later on. We'll read Justine. But anyway, um, no, we are going to stick with despots, oh. conspiracies. Uh-oh. And just as this was the Ides of March, ours will be on a cold day in April when the clocks are striking 13, I believe it is. It's because we will be reading the <gasps> classic dystopian novel 1984 by oh George Oh, my Orwell. goodness. You finally brought it out. Now, I will say, sir, that you said you were all dystopian doubt, so I want to know what changed. <laughs> I've had a little bit of a break from the dystopia okay. for a little while and, and I was um I was looking over some I was just looking over some stuff that I had done recently and I was like, oh, you know, I really feel like I want to talk about this book again. So Well, better that than Brave New World, which I don't care for. Haven't read that one yet. It's it's I, it's in my pile right now, actually. Well, remember your New Year's resolution was to finish your pile and not add to mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so, uh, keeping each other accountable since 2015. Yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> I have some graphic. I have some. I have some Batman trades. I'm working my way through for uh, for for podcasting sake right now. Ah, so. gotcha. Okay, folks. Well, that is it. And I just want to plead with you that if there is a blind older gentleman, probably with a toga, telling you to beware of something, that maybe you should listen to them and also opened up birds or animals that have no hearts. Listen to these signs and don't go to the Senate House. So that's my word of wisdom here. Wise words. (laughs) Thank you. Well, until next time. Fly on, little page lovers. I I don't know. We still don't have a little. Do you think we'll ever get one? No, I think this is the bit. <laughs> I guess so. We just random. Yes. Okay. Goodbye. Hey, to Stella. Oh. Good night. <laughs> enough to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? 
When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercalite, Rice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You only love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art led to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me, my heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.